Welcome to episode 192 of Control the Controllables. And I'm sure we've all just about recovered from that amazing two weeks in Paris. We've had Novak Djokovic moving to the greatest male player of all time. I know that's going to wind some of you up, but I can only speak on statistics. 23 Grand Slam titles to his name. And then Iga Sviatek. Now three times out of four years winning in Roland Garros. Were they the big favourites? Did our panel pick that beforehand? Well, if you did listen, you'll work out that we went against Novak Djokovic apart from Gabby Dabrowski. But the rest of us should hang our head in shame for, for not seeing that the great man was going to go and win his 23rd and make history. And I'm so pleased to say that I have the amazing panellists back from the preview. We've got Freddie Nielsen, the Davis Cup captain for Denmark, but also the 2012 men's doubles champion at Wimbledon. He brings such an incredible insight and knowledge to the game. We've got Gabby Dabrowski, has been as high as four in the world in the women's doubles, winning Masters 1000 events over the last 12 months, and as someone is still very much at the height of the game. So to have someone who's on the inside of the locker room as part of the panel is absolutely brilliant. And then her good friend, Emily Webberly smith who has now been ranked, I believe I saw the other day, it was something absolutely crazy, like 23 years in a row that she's had a WTA ranking after qualifying in the singles at the Surbiton event last week and is still going strong. Top 200 in the world in doubles. Age 38, gives gives her all and has still got a bright future in the game. She really does. And for her to be able to bring all of that knowledge to us is invaluable. And then Kieran Vorster, the fitness coach of Tim Henman back in the day, and Wayne Ferreira, and most recently Liam Brody and Dan Evans. He's not afraid to speak up is our Kieran, and watch this space for this episode, because he is on one, he's on one, but he says what he says is very good, and again, it might split opinion, but it's an opinion that you need to hear. And then we've got Piotr Sepetowski. Piotr was the coach of Iga Sviatek when she won her first French Open. He's now the coach of Shelby Rogers. Again, someone who comes at the game from a bit of a different mindset. He's got a very wise head on young shoulders and is just a brilliant guest for us to have. And that makes up our incredible panel who jump in to lots of topics, lots of subjects. There was there was lots of advice in there on this one, actually. Yes, there's entertainment in this talking of stories as we go through what a storytelling French Open it was. You know, the storylines were out in their absolute dozen from the, from the word go. And we, we do get into all of those storylines, but also share the panel, share lots of messages that you do not want to miss. But before I pass you on to the panel, I also... It's a big part of the culture at Control the Controllables and also Soto Tennis Academy out in Spain that we share. You know, we we love this sport and everything that goes with this sport. And good friend of ours, 
Fabio at Functional Tennis. I just want to give him a shout out for the great work that he is doing with his podcast. And if you haven't come across it yet, the Functional Tennis Podcast, he's got some amazing guests on. And I strongly recommend that you guys, once you've listened to all of these episodes, there should be no shortage of brilliant tennis content out there because you head over there to Functional Tennis Podcast and you'll be able to get more brilliant guests. And we look forward to working and collaborating with Fabio down the line. So well done, mate. Keep up the great work and hope everyone enjoys his brilliant shows as well. But now I'm going to pass you over to my French Open panellists for the review 2023. So our French Open panellists, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thanks. Great, thanks. Good, thanks, Dan. Excellent. And it's it's very exciting, guys, to have you all back. You know, this I don't think we've ever had that, that all of our preview and review guests are the same. So we get to laugh at some people. We get to celebrate. I can see Gabby already smiling in the corner there to celebrate picking the two winners. But to start off with, and I've just said it off air, there was a lot of storylines. There was a lot that was going on in Paris. There was also some beautiful sunshine. But who wants to put their hands up? Who wants to talk about the first storyline that captured their imagination? Mr. Freddie Nielsen. Well, I just got to put it out there that I'm horribly, I told it in the group, I'm horribly ashamed by my, pick beforehand because as the tournament started i started to realize how on earth could i have written off novak and got seduced by his week pre-tournaments because obviously that was the massive storyline he went to 23 and i think as soon as he beat fucevic and was absolutely dominating i was like oh i have horribly and criminally and disappointedly written him off before the tournament started and I should have known better and we all just saw why he is so dominating rewind the tips the French Open <laughs> 2022 and nobody picked Rafael Nadal either so I know Gabby picked Novak Djokovic so well done Gabby the rest of us went against him so is that not something Piot that maybe in tennis we like to do we like to we're always looking for the next the next thing and maybe we're getting too far ahead of ourselves and we don't give these legends of the game enough credit and the experience that they bring in such such events i think we look too much into recent history what they did in the last couple of tournaments which sometimes doesn't play any role in the end so it's like we never know he was ready he said that in rome that he feels ready so he was ready and if I, I, let me also just say that the slam, we I also forgot, the slam is just a different beast. It's a completely different tournament to all the other tournaments. And I, I've always said this, they never rule out the big ones, the Tom Brady's, the Tigers, the Rogers, and same with Novak. Until he's off the court, you literally can't write him off because he's he's different material. And it's not as if yeah. it's not as if his form was that bad either going into it. But, but jumping into to that, uh, in terms of the young guns, obviously, Freddie, we went with Olga Rune. I think a couple mm. of people also went the Alcaraz route as well. We even had an Emily going for a sinner, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. 
yeah, we'll not mention that one too much. But but R- Rune and Alcaraz seem to fall down physically as well, Gabby. You know, so from a from a player's point of view, and I know you're not playing best of five sets, but even even in the doubles, you're doubling the amount of tennis you're playing by going from playing sets and a tie break with sudden death juice to to then playing best of three sets. How how different is it with the with the stress, the tension, you know, everything that goes with a grand slam, and and how much do you think the nerves and and and, and the the format of the five sets affected the Runes and 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 also Carlos Alcaraz? I am not sure of my opinion on best of five uh, and slams or not. I don't know what I prefer as a fan to watch. I think there's something to be said for the epic battles that you get in a fifth set, but then at the same time, you have this issue of some players maybe failing physically, but at the same time, I think, for example, in Alcaraz's situation, I think it was more nerves-driven than it was he was physically unfit. So, I mean, personally, any time that I've cramped um, when I played singles or even like a very, very long doubles match in really bad weather... I cramped because I was too nervous. Um, not, I mean, of course, physicality has, you know, a small part to play, but it's because of the tension of being so tight for too long, um, especially when it, when the weather is warmer. But I don't think the weather was overly warm in Paris. It was warmer than what we might be used to, but it's nothing like a U.S. Open in September or in Australia um, end of January. So I think... Um, I think definitely in Alcaraz's case, it was nerves related. I'm not sure for Rune what it was. Like we spoke in the last podcast that he seemed to have a lot of belief. <laughs> so I don't know if maybe he had a little bit, not too much belief, but like just needed to come back down to earth a little bit and just maybe play. I don't know. But Rune, yeah. Rune looked, I, I remember seeing him after the first round in the cafeteria and he was hobbling. And oh. and I and I actually saw him most days in he in he, I'm sure that's kind of a tennis player thing after a long match and you you've come off court, but I I remember thinking to myself quite early on in the first week, he didn't look like he was in the in the best of shape just after the match. I, I don't know if there's something in that, but I want to pick up on the five sets because that was one of the big things for me that stood out, and I I'm a bit of a sucker for emotions and history and the whole way that it builds a tennis match builds and we had the Monfils match which fall of down in the third and he's like winning on one leg hitting a winner and the crowd are going crazy and it was just for me that that drama so I looked into it and I thought it felt like there was more five set matches than we normally have and and actually 33 percent of the first round matches so 21 of the first round matches went to five sets which is mm. which is a, is 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 incredible and I I compared that to last last year Roland Garros and it was it was 14% 14 times it went to five sets last year 21 this year in the first round and in the first week this year there was 30 matches that went to five sets and last year 19 now the Aussie Open just to have a look at that to give a bit of context was 15 in the first round this year and 25 in the first week Roland Garros second week there was one Rune against Serendulo 
you know, so uh, we we hear people saying that actually, and I had the, the the podcast that actually goes out tomorrow. Andy Jarrett, the the Wimbledon referee for many years, he proposed that the first week shouldn't be five sets, but second week should be all five set match and men and women's. That was an opinion that 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 he gave. But then we miss out on those twenty one or those thirty incredible spectacles and it felt like the noise going around Roland Garris was like oh my god there's another five set match and the crowd were going crazy and they were booing anyone that would move you know and they were making all this noise and it just felt to me like it was a really fun dramatic first week uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that Emily and five set matches I think that we all underestimate the preparation that it takes to maintain the level over those five sets and the work that goes in physically to those guys being able to play that but then in a slam with the recovery to then do that with a day in between um only i think that's why like freddie says with the slam being a different beast i think for those guys who have had experience of five set matches it makes such a difference going into it if you i'm sure there's a number of those guys going in into those that first round battles that you were saying that have never played five sets and you can prepare for it by, you know, longer practices, more endurance, more speed endurance, all the work in the legs. But I think until you play that and until you feel it on the clay, you, you don't know how, how it's going to be. And I think absolute just literally looking at the intensity that the guys were playing at and in that first set and second set with the Alcaraz Djokovic match, I just feel that from their point of view, I think we can't, you can't underestimate Djokovic's experience in those situations. Um, and I remember he said he was hurting physically after the second set in the interview. I think he took a medical at the end of the second, right, for his right quad or something. But, yeah, from a physical point of view and from the tennis and the level of concentration and, and how long that actually is over that period of time, I'm the same as you, Dan. I love the five set. I love those kind of battles. And I love to see that spirit and that, you know, the crowd and, and everyone getting behind it in the mom feast type situation as a fan. But if I'm watching at home, I'll sort of watch the first set and a half and then go away and do something and come back yeah. at two sets all or something because I can't sit down for five sets and watch five sets of tennis. Oh, I watch mom um, feast from four all in the fifth. <laughs> I didn't watch it all. Yeah, exactly you know. what I mean. So I can, I'm like with Gabs on that, I can see where it's from a fan point of view, but then from a player point of view, I respect so much the amount of work that has gone into them being able to maintain a physical level and a tennis level and a mental level over that period of time. And that's where I think the top guys who have had that experience have got such an advantage in slams, um, which I think we we did miss a little bit going with the with the preview. Um, of how important that actually is. And and Vozzy, to bring you in, we're t- talking about the, the physicality and, and what it takes to play best of five sets over two weeks. You know, we we underestimated Djokovic. I think we all agree to that, the, the experience that it takes, the way you look after your body. You know, we had big Rune and Alcaraz supporters in here that their bodies failed them both, it seemed. You know, it felt like, both of them, certainly Alcaraz in those last two sets against Djokovic. Rune really looked from the word go against Rude that he had no chance. He had nothing in the tank. He looked like he was turning into Stefan Edberg to try and get through the match, serve volleying coming into the net, but he was he was unable to really play his own game. From a physical standpoint, how 
how do you prepare an athlete for a Grand Slam, seven matches, best of five sets? And and how different is that now when the rest of the year you're not really playing that amount of amount of tennis? Yeah, that's a good question. Freddie and I had a, a good conversation about this, actually. Um, I think it was after the Rune-Rude match. I always condition the athletes, say, um, so I'm, I'm working with Dan Evans at the moment. So, you know, I, last week and this week, it was to condition him to basically go to a hellhole for, for two weeks so that he feels that when, when obviously he's playing those five-step matches, he's never going to go to the darkness that he's going in, in within these two weeks. So the training prescription is, is very extreme. However, when, when you're going into a slam, I mean, there's a lot more other, other variables that come into play. So obviously Rune, Rune had that 7-6 in the fifth the match before. And probably, you know, not just that maybe took out physically, but it took out emotionally and mentally. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously uh, playing Casper. Casper was like the Iceman. Uh, he got off to a good start. And, and he's, you know, the, the, the head-to-head was 4-1. But, you know, like, you know, obviously, um, Freddie said it, you know, it was really good that he won in Rome, which I, I said I didn't disagree with. But the conditions were easily brushed off because they had no comparison to what was happening in Paris. And then obviously, obviously with all these things, I always say the ability to perform is dictated by the ability to recover. So it's just looking at the best recovery modalities whilst you're in a, in a grand slam that is going to give your athlete, put them in good stead to, to perform when they go out uh, and play obviously 48 hours later. So I, I, I would always, you know, obviously, I, and same with Evo is, is, is looking at, you know, and, and, and with Liam that I work with is looking at what recovery modalities in place. Um, so that you know they have the best opportunity when they come back, that they're in they're in their freshest state possible, both mentally and physically. How um, and close I think the would you? Match, I think that I think I think I think the occasion got to him. I think there was a lot of hype, um, and 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 I think I think everybody you know, including myself, underestimated the powers of Djokovic and what a phenomenal tennis player he is and continues to be. I I have to ask you, Vozzi, the because it's great insight what you're saying about what you're doing with Evo. How close would you do that to a Grand Slam? So the 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 hell week or the hell fortnight, how the much? Re- hole, yeah. How how much recovery time would you give to him before he then, to I guess to get fresh to then be ready to to play the Grand Slam? Yeah. So 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 obviously obviously this week is a hell hole, and then. You know, he, he will play for down Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, going into Queens. And then, you know, the, the idea is that if he, you know, if he has a fantastic, you know, Queens event, he'll have a couple of days off at the start of, of the week before Wimbledon, that Monday, Tuesday, and then, and then start lighting up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, going into, going into, into Wimbledon. And so, so you're basically creating the foundation or, or trying to create some form of foundation based and, and, and understanding of the physicality and mentality that is required to play the five sets, probably you know two to three weeks out, um, out from the event, and then hopefully he, you know, he, uh, your, your player has enough matches, you know, going in so that the week before, you know, he can really focus on tapering down so that you know he's in a good, good, good frame of mind mentally, physically, and and in a good place for the game tennis wise. Fawzi, can I just ask you on the Alcaraz situation? Um, do you think that there is a possibility that they under his team or whoever 
decides those things underestimated slightly something with his mineral with his nutrition with his just something slightly um in the days leading up to the match when he cramped um mm. with his recovery or do you think it was purely do you think it's so scientific at, at that point with a team in place that mm. it's not possible for them to have made a mistake where they've underestimated slightly um, how how much he's taking on board and and fluids and minerals and everything as regards cramping, or was purely the nerves and the situation that he was in with the intensity that Djokovic was playing? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, without me without me knowing the facts, it, it seemed to me that the occasion got to him because basically, I think his run at the U.S. Open was a lot tougher. You know, his quarters and his semis. You know, he played he played two five set matches, finishing at whatever it was four five in the morning. He never played that day. He never went to the court that day. And then the following day, went to the court, you know, and played his match. And he, and he had two back-to-backs there. So I think the adversity of what he handled in New York was, was, a, was, was a lot tougher than what he was handling, I guess, at, at the French. But I think... Yeah, and height... I, I don't mean from, like, a physical preparation fitness point of view. I mean, like, from an actual, like, mineral, like, fluids recovery. Yeah, I, I I'd be very surprised if they dropped the ball on that. Uh, I, yeah. I think that... So, so my, point, my point being is that, obviously, at the US Open... When when he had when he had this longer run, they must have been pumping with certain minerals and vitamins, you know, yeah. through through that through that day, and and they would have probably followed the same protocol or or formula that they were using at the U.S. Open. But but I I I I think I I just think that you know the the occasion got to him in terms of the hype move the the whole hype around that match was massive, and everybody was talking about it. Um, and it never, never lived up to the expectation of, of what everyone was was hoping it would be. And, and I think there was a combination of, of, of obviously Novak, N- Novak playing tactically the right way, and and then um, Alcaraz self imploding. I guess is, is the way I'd put it. Yeah. And, and Emily, that 130 euros doesn't go far on the credential. <laughs> you know, and I, there's a, there's a, he's got a big team. Does Alcaraz? You know, and if, if he's sharing that 130 euros among six people, uh, sushi, sushi, but come sushi, on, Dan, sushi was 25 euros you, for 10 you didn't pieces. Want it. You didn't want it to spend five euros there. The, the food was so bad this year. So, like, come on, come on, give us <laughs> some insight. Give us some insight, Piel. What tell us about the food at the French Open? No, I, th- I think food was terrible this year. And I, every single time, I'm not gonna lie, Roland Garros <laughs> is the worst with food and it's like, it's terrible. So I, actually you can ask Shelby, I don't think she spent 1.30 once. I think she was always like, ah, you can have it. I don't need anything. I'm gonna eat at the hotel. Uh, so, and where, yeah. so where's so. where where's the best, which is the best slam for food? For players and coaches. Oh, Australian Open by far. So, yeah, Australian Open, but then Wimbledon for strawberries. Come on, <laughs> exactly. 130 euros on strawberries and cream. You've got that. To, <laughs> you got that to look forward to. Pounds, pounds. <laughs> <laughs> the the one I, I I'd like to bring you in, Gabby, is I'm sure you picked it up. I certainly did. Was I I've I mentioned it. The French crowd. I don't know what got into them this year. I, I know they like it. Too. <laughs> They used to boo. They used to always boo someone in the final, maybe. But it felt like almost every match they were just having a good old boo and sis, which that was fine. I think it, it was quite. It's quite good for the drama. 
But the one, there's like there's moments, I think, when characters are born, when that happens. And Taylor Fritz, I don't know Taylor, but he kind of has always come across as just, he's a nice enough guy, but he, there's not a big personality there necessarily. But I absolutely loved it. When he got when he got fully he got fully booed playing against the French player he stood there just like completely taking it and then had like a couple of sarcastic words to say and and for me I just thought it was such a it was such a nice moment to see these different characters that that are coming out uh, I don't know what from a pair from a player's side is 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 it too much when that happens or or are players able to appreciate that actually. The crowd are there. This is great entertainment, and we don't take it too personally. It's so tough because I haven't figured this out even for myself. If I would rather a crowd be like super into it or just like more quiet and appreciate the tennis, um, and I'm getting older, so <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I feel like you're right. The French crowd was uh, excessively booing for what seemed like no reason. Sometimes, sometimes it was warranted, but I mean. They're tough. Like you can't even question a line call for five seconds without them getting on you. Gav, um, you had four four people against an entire French crowd for your mix against Lucas Pui and uh, Chloe Paquet. And when yeah. they won, when Gav won, there was absolute silence. silence. I was like, <laughs> we won. The serve was in. We won. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there I think was no it's really appreciation tough. of good like, tennis there. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, I feel like the crowd needs to appreciate the sport. Like, of course, you can get excited for your favorites, but appreciate when there's really good points played. And I feel like this year in France, it was just so heavily one sided or whoever they decided to cheer for that day that it was like, okay, I mean, like, if I hit a great shot, like, you got to be like, just a little, just a little, you know, come on. <laughs> I, I was there for the booing. I loved it. I was, I was like, bring it on. It just, it, it, it was, I was finding it hilarious. And I actually switching sports. I managed to get a ticket for, for Messi's last game, potentially last game in Europe at PSG. And uh, every time he touched the ball, they booed. So and when he got called out at the end of the night, he got booed as well. So it was obviously something in the water that the Parisians were just absolutely gone for it. Um, but you mentioned there Luc Lucas Puy, and he is another one, Lucas Puy, that it had a, a, another storyline of mine, Freddie. And, you know, if you take a few minutes to Google Lucas in his last few years, he was a top 10 player in the world. He's had, he's had big problems, you know, mental health problems, alcohol problems. You know, he's had a lot, lot going on in his life and he's, he's only what, 28, 29 years old, you know, and here he is back, back playing some, some top, top class tennis. And, and I think that was, that was a great thing to see as well. Oh, most definitely. And his story is so important. I think uh, now now going into coaching, one of the things that, or the thing I value the most in my players is that they have a, so a solid foundation, whether you're doing good or bad. It's so important that the basics of your life are there. And this is such a good example for, for, for the youngsters out there to see hmm, if, you, if you're trying to chase uh, glory and victory as a substitute for quality of life, you're going to be disappointed. You got to have that solid foundation in your life. And then whatever comes with it is just a bonus. And we've seen it a few times with people who won stuff as well. 
Um, team just uh, talked about it in an interview, how he felt empty after the US Open. And I think it's such an important story to tell. And I think he was pretty brave to come up with it and, and show some vulnerability. Um, but 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 I was really happy to see him back. And it also shows me, I hope, hope he's also kind of competing a little more for the love of the game now, since he's uh, basically paraphrasing his own words, hit rock, rock bottom before. Um, so it's nice. It's never nice to see a guy do well. I don't think many people have had too many bad things to say him. So I think it was very positive to see him do well. And uh, especially that moment on the, as it was a court 14 where he was singing the national anthem with the crowd. I like yeah. that. Get it, get there. There was a really powerful moment and a guy who's been through a lot. That was probably more important to him than than some of the bigger victories he's had. And we talked about, didn't we, on the on the preview, how I guess we touched on social media and the whole sharing of this. You know, getting getting on the inside of people and being able to connect to people a little bit more, understand them a little bit bit more. And there was another one that stood out for me was was Echeverry, who I think is a brilliant player and he comes across incredibly well. And after one of his matches, he talked about, you know, how his younger sister died a year ago from cancer and he was stood up at the uh, uh, stood up to serve and he was talking so eloquently about it that you know she jumped into his mind and he started thinking I've got to do it for my sister and it, th- those are the stories when I'm watching as a fan that that may really make me feel feel with them and the, and then and then and then want to watch and I thought it was really interesting on the back of what we spoke about before um, how that happened. And I think it's, I think it's also a very important message to send to kids because they think that these very good athletes are superstars who don't go through adversity and are just extremely confident and can do everything. And I think it's really important that all these things come out so that the youngsters coming through can see that these are regular human beings who are just very good at sports. And obviously, they have found a way. Most of them to to be able to deal with adversity. They all face adversity. Everybody does. And I think it's very important that this narrative is out so that youngsters don't feel they're strange or weird if they're nervous in a match or they feel some kind of self-doubt because everybody goes through it. The better ones are just more equipped or better groomed to deal with it. Not just for the kids, for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and 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 on and on a, on the lighter side, I came away from the preview thing. Nobody mentioned City Pass this year, and I remember thinking, "Oh God, have we messed up here?" You know, but we now know that actually we were right to not mention him because he was too busy cuddling up to Bedosa over the last couple of weeks and, and posting it everywhere, everywhere on social media. So, Piot, what's going on? It's it's, it's everywhere. I, why are you asking me? I have no clue. <laughs> you must but, I, but I think maybe that's why we should mention it before. We didn't predict it. So that's our fault. But but come on, who saw that one coming? <laughs> no one. <laughs> but I will say it now. She's going to break his heart. That's my prediction. Oh, that's a prediction. Whoa, okay, that's the that's best one so far. Is it real? Is it real? Are they, are they, sa- on, are they Dan, selling Dan, Dan, something? Stop, stop. Dan, we need an elaboration. You can't just throw that out and not elaborate. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, on Do we what? get some popcorn here or what? Well, I, I'm just I'm just wondering. I mean, for those that don't know, again, you can find a lot of things out on Google nowadays. But 
Pedosa was with that hunk, that Spanish hunk, the last time I saw in Miami, you know, which I'm not a one to normally look at guys, but I did find myself looking at him a little bit. You know, he was a good looking guy. <laughs> and and the next thing we know, you know, it's all over social media, her and Stefanos Tsitsipas, and they've it's come out through Spotify. So I'm starting to think, is this like some kind of Spotify ad that they're getting paid millions for, you know, that they, it's going to, in a couple of weeks' time, it's going to turn around and Spotify sales have gone up. But I don't know. If not, I hope they're very happy. What do you reckon, Vozzy? It's, uh, I'm, I'm with Gabby. It's, it's going to be a, a broken heart along the way. None of these things work out that well. Um, <laughs> well not... <laughs> how, how, how many have worked out? Huh? I mean, is this what, just relationships in general, or <laughs> oh, in general? <laughs> All right, don't get me started only, on relationships in general. Agassi and Graf. Yeah, don't you? Berrettini, Berrettini, and and uh, Tom Tom Lanovich, whatever her name is. I mean, they're all over Netflix, and it lasted two minutes. I mean, what a waste of time that was. Do me a favor. Huh? I mean, what, what are we doing? What are we doing that? And, and, and what are we showing on that? Showing a relationship or showing tennis? I mean, do me. Come on, guys. Come on. Let's, let's get real in the real life here, man. And, and talking of relationships, we're going to move into doubles relationships. And Gabby, I'm going to throw this one your way because. <laughs> <laughs> Port 14 was a magical court. Well, not so magical, maybe for for some for some of us as the as the tournament went on. How, however, court 14 was where Lucas Hui was singing. And then uh, my boys, Harry Heliavara, Lloyd Glassball, were about to go on. And you have that moment as a as a tennis player, tennis coach, where the score stops on your court the match before. And you're like, uh-oh, what, what's happening here? You know, maybe we could have been going on in an hour and a half, but 15 minutes time, we could be on. Everyone turned on the TV. We saw Kato hit a ball. I mean, tickle a ball over the other side of the court. Uh, happened to hit the ball, kid. We all know what happened after. She ended up getting defaulted with her partner. And... Yeah, that was that was a, a massive, massive controversy that obviously wasn't helped by the way that the opponents, and I'm going to give them the, the benefit of the doubt in some ways. We can all get caught up in the moment of a match. You know, where I'm not giving them the benefit of the doubt is I don't like the way that they didn't come out with any humility afterwards and hold their hands up and say, look, we are caught up in the moment there. That was absolutely wrong. I don't know. Offer some prize money. Something that I think saves their reputation a little bit. The female locker room. How was that when, when all of that was kicking off, Gabby? Um, I mean, the female locker room is kind of quiet anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, I wasn't in there. So I wasn't. Probably everyone was like glued to the TVs, but I wasn't. But I did see it. Um, so I can't speak of the reactions of others in the immediate moment, but definitely a lot of tweets flying around, getting sent to everyone. What do you think of this? Is it too harsh? Is it not harsh? And like, whatever. Miyukato, uh, Miyukato is a great tennis player, but she does have a small temper that I've seen before. <laughs> um, and That's so I'm actually surprised that something like this hadn't happened to her before because she has been a bit careless in other matches with her racket, with the ball. That said, what got she got defaulted for was probably one of the most tame things that I've seen. So I think it was really bad luck 
I think it was also a little bit stupid to pass the ball in that way. Like you should always bounce it, even if you're passing it to the ball kid, just in case, as we saw. Um, but yeah, definitely poor form by the opponents to try to push for a default when they actually didn't see exactly what had happened. They'd only seen the aftermath um, and the ball girl visibly upset. Like you said, benefit of the doubt, maybe they assumed that the ball hit the girl a lot harder than it did. Okay, you want to make your case, that's fine, but definitely don't laugh about it. And like you said, definitely have some sort of remorse after the fact, after you've been awarded a match like that, that you were um, actually not head in even so yeah um really tough situation but i can say at least from a council perspective um discussing a lot about rules and, and what it means for umpires discretion in those kinds of situations can we bring in virtual uh replay like what can we do better in a situation like that like what needs to happen um and then as well as encouraging kato to push uh for an appeal to reinstate at least some of prize money points, you know, in her defense. But yeah, that's not for us to decide. It's just for us to support. But yeah, crazy. And and Pia, did did you come across because it was the talk, wasn't it? It's it's like a little community, these Grand Slams. And you know, when something happens like that, I mean everyone I was in the gym getting ready, getting ready for the boys' match. Everyone was watching it. Everyone was talking about it in in the male locker room. It was, which is not always a quiet place. It wasn't a quiet place that afternoon. You know, everyone was really like, and and I can tell you had like strong opinions. I didn't hear one opinion that she should have been defaulted, apart from Nick Kyrgios on Twitter. Um, Piot, what did you think? Did you hear anyone you think know, she I, should I, be defaulted? I, I, I wasn't there anymore at this time, so I didn't feel what you did. But uh, I would say it's for me really tricky situation because I think it's all up to ref. And what happened for me, the worst is actually lying after the match that we just explained the situation from the opponent. So that's what I didn't like this behavior. But in the match, first reaction was good for me which was like, uh, she got a warning. Yes, that, that what happened. Then, because of the pressure, they got defaulted. So I think if the ref is taking the decision to give a warning at this moment, it's probably the best decision. Without video review, we cannot actually, you know, like, know what's, what, why, what's the reason to default her? So why somebody else who didn't see the situation is coming to the court and, you know, pushing it with any certain reason to do this. Like they don't know for sure. So actually review would be good, but only for supervisor who is out of the court, who doesn't have to watch every single ball and that's okay. They should review it with the, with the ref on, uh, with the umpire and then decide what to do next. So that's that's only my opinion about the, the situation on the court. And I hate the behavior after claiming that we didn't push for default. We we just explained the situation. That's totally unfair play. And I think it should be somehow penalized, not in a way penalized as a some sort of fine or anything, but like in a locker room, there shouldn't be approval for that kind of behaviors. In the rules. I believe that one of the one of the rules states 
if you hurt the ball kid, then it becomes it, it, it's more serious. With so intent, it, it is. With intent. It's, you hurt with intent. So yeah. so if you have intent and you smack a ball harder than that, but you happen to miss the ball kid, or you hit the ball kid in an area that doesn't hurt them, that it, it, it it's all a bit too <laughs> funny. Is and it big. also with if you hit it with anger? That's also a key phrase. Yeah, with yeah, with frustration with and that, that, intent with, to hurt. With with intention, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, from what I heard, it's more if you do something with negligence, and then it hurts someone. It doesn't matter if you intended to or not because it was negligent. Um, and then there's something about an action and a reaction. So actually, if the ball girl hadn't reacted at all, it would have been okay. But because there was a reaction and it seemed like there was hurt, then the more severe punishment came. So that's why we have sometimes like a cameraman getting hit. Someone hits the cameraman in anger with a ball, but the cameraman's like gets hit a million times, doesn't care, whatever. Nothing happens. So I feel like it's also in Novak's situation, which that ball was hit in more anger, I would say, than what Kato did. But the the woman also like took it extremely hard and then it was because of that reaction that then the punishment is steeper that's how i understand the rule well, there was that would make sense there mm. was the, there was now bandian at queens many years yeah. ago yeah and so the, so the, the rule the rules ambiguous right so basically basically the rule should be if you hit anybody and, and, and whatever you, you're you're getting defaulted not if you hit somebody and based on the reaction of that person will determine what what punishment are you going to get? That's a nonsense. Yeah, or if you hit them from the neck up, because that's like really no, but that, that, that makes makes no no difference for me. If you hit them in the foot, that's the same. If you hit, yeah. if you, you shouldn't if you, be. If you hit them, and then the other point, the other point that I find bizarre is you get defaulted from that 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 event. You still allowed to play the other events of the tournament. For me, if you get defaulted, you defaulted from the tournament. Go home. You shouldn't be allowed to play play different events. I think it's because how that situation went down when the opponents so strongly had influenced the decision the referees the supervisors the grand slam board whatever said yeah. okay we're actually going to let her play so is that, is that okay. right okay. So normal so normal in normal circumstances if you default from one event you you default from the, the tournament right uh is that, no is that i think it is it is discretionary i think it depends that's on the severity that's an absolute nonsense if if you defaulted, you defaulted from the from the tournament, not not just yeah. But the question the question would be if you pass the ball and you hit somebody, shouldn't be they they be aware that they are ball kids and they have to catch the ball? Like that's the question because that's their job. What they are doing on court, they are not five five hundred random kids. Kids, they are selected from ten thousand kids who wanna be ball boys. So she should be. Ready, ball kids. Yeah. Well, it, but well, there's two things for me. One, Roger Federer hit the ball a lot harder than Kato hit the ball. Whenever he used to, he used to kind of squat the ball back, back to back to the ball kids. They were watching. They caught it, but I used to think, oh my god, that's crazy hard. Two, if you watch the video, the ball kid is not in the normal position. The ball kid's actually yeah. inside the court. Yeah, she's not looking. She's she inside. Wasn't and she's inside the tennis court. She's not stood back where she would normally be stood. She's I actually cried just because of the surprise in, of where I'm it hit sure her, she was. In, I'm sure she was inside the baseline. 
on the court. No, 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 no. no, no, no. She was, she was behind yeah. the court, but you are right. No. She wasn't in a corner. She was exactly. more to the middle. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. And 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 then Gabby, on the aftermath of this, what did the PTPA do to the the player? Because they put out these fantastic statements on Twitter and Instagram of how they should be a fair and trial and everything. But actually, what 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 did they do? Did I mean what have they done for that player? I have no idea. I'm not on PTPA. There we go. There <laughs> I don't go. know because, what they I did. Mean, I'm sure. I'm sure you would have known because there's a huge Canadian influence in the PTPA. Um, and I, I would have, I'm just surprised that they put out all these statements, but there's, there's never, ever anything, you know, other than these statements. It was the same when Andy Murray finished at four o'clock in, in Australia. They were like, yeah, we, you know, this is not right for the player. And we as the PTPA and, and our union, we're going to stick up for the player's rights. And we're going to, what are they doing? Are they contacting the Grand Slams? Are they contacting, you know, are they starting to actually put some, you know, some fuel in the fire and start, you know, at, at going going at things. Because for me, for me, it's just it's a lot of bullshit. That if they're going to be, be be represent the players, they've got to go in with guns blazing and actually start making some changes. Otherwise, shut up with these strap lines and corporate. Volzi for president. PTPA, if you're listening, get the man, get the no. man on. President, no, President Volzi. Ahmed Nasser, I don't think understands it to, to the degree that he should, and. You know, I, I, it just blows my mind how after all these all these years they they're coming up with these these corporate lines. But what are they doing? What are they doing? What changes have they made? Well, are I they think, rattling cages? I think what's well, I'm sure we could have a whole conversation about tennis and unionization. I would love to allowed and all to. this stuff. Yeah. But I think what the PTPA is struggling right now is because they don't have full player representation because not all the players have like signed on. So they can't actually technically advocate for all the players because they don't represent all the players. So it's a lot of like social media posting, but I'm not sure exactly how much happens behind the scenes. And I can't speak for them because I'm not a part of it. But I think that's one of the problems that they're running into right now. It's kind of oh. like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, the players joining oh. an association, which everyone is telling us we can't do or is it the association doing something for the players and something getting done whether or not there's player support Correct. Of, you know so so. for a collective bargaining for a collective bargaining agreement they only need 25 players names and they can take it to the high court and they can challenge all federations on on, on a cba without affecting any of the tours but they can start that process i i, I know the legal background on this 100 percent fact Maybe you and all they need is 25 names and, and, and they can basically prove as, as the cartel that the ITF, the ATP, the WCA are in cahoots with, with, with each other and are restricting these independent contractors from playing when they're supposed to play and making them play when they shouldn't have to play. Are you, are you a supporter of the PTPA, Vozzi? I think the PTPA has a potential of being a fantastic organization to represent the players because there is no conflict they would be player representation without owning tournaments um uh, having sponsors it'll be it'll be like the pfa here in the uk and i've spoken to them about uh, and i could have them have have them speak to gordon taylor but the biggest problem they have is that the representatives working for the pcpa are coming from a a background of you know, national hockey where they're employees. It's very different when you're an independent contractor and how, how, you, how you're going to support an independent contractor. But what you can prove beyond doubt is that, for example, if you rank 20 and you don't play 1,000 
ATP thousand, you you get zero points and and do you get fined? I think you get fined. You used to get fined. That goes against what an independent contract is about. An independent contractor should be able to. Well, if I don't play that week, I don't make any money. But I shouldn't then be penalised and 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 fined for not playing it based on my ranking. And there's there's loads and loads of different there's loads and loads of different things that. And another example would be, and I did the study of it in 2019, the ATP 250 event, as an example. You play every ATP 250 event. If you win it, you get 250 points. But the prize money disparity in 2019 was between $88,000 and $220,000 of winning an ATP 250. How is that possible? And how is that allowed to happen? Now, if you've got proper player representation, backing the players, you would go in there and say, right, you know, you have to, if you're standardizing points at, at 250, 500,000, you've got to standardize the prize money as well. But this disparity in prize money, and it's the same on the WTA tour. And you just need people that have the back of the players. And when the players know that these people have their back, then they will come. They'll all come. But they're like, well, I should have gone to the PCPA if, if wishy-washy to a certain degree. You know? And, and it's the same, you know, well, same they, as any movement, isn't it? And any movement takes time and it takes it takes it takes balls for people to jump in and to take the risk at first and be the be the be the early ones that, that jump on board so I, I think i think from a conceptual standpoint absolutely we you know we were seeing it with golf any you know whenever something's not monopolized it, it it opens up the possibility for players to be represented better so i think from a concept standpoint and and i'm sure with time especially with now the greatest male player of all time, whether people like it or not, statistically is and, and is going to be, you know, and soon, sooner you'll be statistically the greatest player of all time, in 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 my in my opinion, you know, if he he's leading it, you'd think that it's going to make some proper movement in in the coming years. He's dipping his toe in and he's dipping his toe out. He's not leading it because because it's too tiresome for the guy. If he if he's to lead this and do it properly, he would lose focus on 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 playing tennis. It's one of the big the hedge funders in New York. They put put two and a half, I think, two and a half million dollars uh, into in, into the PTPA and said, yeah, off you go, start off with that. And and so that you know, now you know they're bringing up like super trump cards and and stuff for the players. And you know, the players have an image and a right and you know the image rights and you know we've got to look after the players. It's like, come on, guys. You know, it, it, guys and girls, it's like, you know, you let's, let's strip it back to the basics and the fundamentals of, of, of what you're trying to achieve. And, and I'm sick and tired of hearing, you know, I just hear it coming up on Twitter and, you know, the, the fundamentals of what the PTPA stand for. And when, when there's a misdoing at a tournament, they put out the statement. So actually, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you actually challenging the, the organizations? Are you that strong enough to challenge them? And that's the million dollar question. The end of this section of the podcast is that Kato went on and won the mixed doubles. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but no, Fozzie, it's a great subject, and it's great to get it's a great to get your take. And I think you know it would be it would be good for us to open up that conversation for sure on other podcasts. You know, but but I do I do want to make that point. I think of the story for her to go with Tim Poots and win the mixed doubles after what happened. Was was another cool storyline I think to come out of the French Open and uh, a great example of responding. You know, I think we we are in a sport of adversity, and uh, if you are, I always I always think 
I, I heard something a few years ago, and it's something I've really taken personally. When something when something bad happens, say the word good. And it's, it's amazing what it can do to the mindset. It's absolutely incredible what it can do for the mindset because there's always opportunity. And and I think, you know, she's used that incredibly well, actually, and come out of it incredibly well in, in everything from social media. She's now got fans around the world. And, you know, eight, eight to 10 days on, she's a mixed doubles Grand Slam champion. She's got a lot of support. And, and the two girls that made probably the wrong choice uh, are the opposite, you know, and that's that's how the world works. But I I do want to move into into the women's side, you know, eager, you know, well done, well done to Piot, well done to Gabby on on picking and staying true to to the polls. You know, was was it ever in doubt? It maybe was at one point. You know, I think we we saw that you know Mukova it, it played played some incredible tennis. Um, it obviously, I think Rebekina going out early made 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 life a little bit easier. I would imagine she's happy that she didn't see Sabalenka at the other side of the court in the final as as well. But just a couple of little statistics before I throw it to you, Piot. You know, she she has now made three finals. She's she's won the French Open three times. She's only the fourth player to do that at such a young age. You know, and the the fourth youngest player in the open era behind such great names as Monica Seles, who, by the way, had already made th- three Roland Garros finals at the age of eighteen. You know, <laughs> Steffi Graf at the age of nineteen, Chris Evert at the age of twenty, and now Eager at the age of twenty-two. And you know, it does feel like she's she's got it going on. You know, four Grand Slams. She seems to have found found the formula. What what was your take on the women's event in particular on how Eager performed and got the job done the last couple of weeks, Piot? That actually was the toughest Roland Garros for her because of the conditions and the balls she had. Like that was the biggest challenge for Iga to actually perform that well and to win that one. Tell tell us but, why. Uh, tell tell the listener why. Why why someone's listening going, okay, great, but what does that mean? What was, was the like, conditions? First of all, really dry, not humid, not raining at all. So balls flying a little bit faster. But on the other hand, balls dead after three to five shots, which didn't promote generating winners from any spot on a court. So uh, so for Iga, terrible conditions because she likes to force it. But when the conditions are slower. Not that that way. And it was really windy. So I know from the insides that she was complaining a lot and that was a tough tournament for her. So good job and, and congrats. And I would say I wasn't surprised what happened in women draw. Like everything was a little bit expected what, what, what was happening. So it wasn't like something surprisingly appearing from nowhere so only what you said Rybakina who just withdrew because of the sickness uh, maybe Tsurenko fighting for six games with Iga you know like those small small stories but we are not even remembering it because it's like something not that important to the whole tournament so I think it went well with the plan and actually Muhova as my choice of dark horse she was she was playing well i i really like it i i had i spent a lot of time with flipper this tournament because she played with shelby double so yeah she was healthy mohova was playing well i'm 
I'm happy she was in the final. And is she is she the real deal to be pushing those top five girls on a regular basis? You know, like tools wise, it's like she's a great player, but I'm not sure if physically she can maintain that shape for a long period of time. What I would say maybe if she select tournaments wisely better than in the past maybe she can play five six well a year but i don't think she's at the stage of her career that she can push to play 16 you know so let's see let's see i'm keeping fingers crossed for her because i always liked her team i like her as a person uh, i spent a lot of time in czech republic practicing around her like we used to go there to consult with other coaches there. So she's a great person. So fingers crossed for her. And Reba Kina, you know, we, again, I think we all felt, you know, she, she had a chance, Emily, she was, she was your pick. You know, yeah. there wasn't a lot of luck that was flying around your way. Um, maybe we call it luck. Maybe we call it bad picks, but in terms of, in terms of Reba Kina, well, she was on the practice courts the morning of, you no, know, she warmed up. Yeah. You know, could she have not found a way through that match and then taken a 48 hours off and then been ready to go again? Yeah, I think, I mean, none of us know how she was feeling, but I think if you get up and you walk on the court to practice, you're feeling reasonably okay or you want to try at least. But I don't know, maybe she's getting advice from people Sorry. that you don't know what, you don't I, know what I, the situation I interrupt. is because she just went to warm up and she did like five to six minutes and she, she couldn't she yeah. couldn't yeah so yeah. that was like already telling her oh i cannot go and push yeah it, you know yeah i think you don't know right until you start moving you try you think you want to try and then you realize that how how exactly physical our sport is when you try and hit a few balls and you just you just know that you can't walk out there but i did feel for her um coming into it because i think like I said, I think she she'd obviously been playing some good tennis, and I think going into even that match, she she was, I think we were all quite confident about her. Um, in the latter stages, we don't know, right? In semis and final and stuff, but at that point, I think I was I was rooting for her. I, I thought <laughs> I thought that she could do well, um, but yeah, I think especially clay, especially in the in that environment, I think you you obviously need to be operating at even 80% just to be able to walk on the court. Otherwise, you know, it's not worth it. And Vozzy, our, our Sabalenka, who was looking, oh, God, was looking she was looking so strong. Do you know what I mean? And she like, was looking so strong. Like, and then, and, and five we, two, Fozzy, five two. And we're thinking, do you know what I mean? She maybe used to choke once upon a time, but those days have gone. Those days have gone. And then, and then it happened. The, the collapse happened. Oh yeah, I mean it happens to the best of us. I mean, I mean she she'll put it she'll brush it aside. Uh, she'll come back and um, yeah, get ready for Wimbledon. It's one of those things. I mean, I was a bit surprised that uh, yeah these things happen. And and I I went pretty big Gabby on the big three beforehand. I was loving the threes in the in the preview, and luckily the winner came out of the big three in on both sides, but. Is is that fair now that we we do have a big three on the women's side? Is that you know I guess I get going into Wimbledon we're we're probably thinking Sabalenka Rybakina as the as the big favourites. You know can Iga do it on grass? We don't know yet, but um, it does seem like they're starting to push themselves into that position. 
maybe a little bit of a breakaway, but Wimbledon's playing, you know, slower the last few years than it did before. So I feel like I wouldn't write off the players that don't hit with as much pace as Rubikina or Sabalenka. I mean, we saw Stritzova make semis, I think, in 2019. So, and we have Tatiana Maria who made semis last year, didn't she? So I last think... Last year. Yeah, she made last year, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think just because they're the big hitters doesn't necessarily mean that they're the top picks for the Wimbledon Championship. I think they would be top picks just because of the way that they've been playing, but not necessarily because they have the most power. I'll take that half half validation. I was looking for some validation. I'm going to take... I'm going to take it as 50% validation. And and Freddie, uh, an interesting statistic, you know, the those out there that love talking about equal pay, people shouldn't have equal pay because the men play more time than on court than the women do and you know that which which I always throw back at them, you don't pay more money to go and watch Lord of the Rings than you do to watch you know, another movie it's just because it lasts for three hours, 45 or whatever. In fact, I'd pay less money to sit and watch a three hour, 45 movie. However, had oh, Ma- I agree. <laughs> totally agree. I would pay less. <laughs> An hour and a half, finish your popcorn, get out of there. Do you know what I mean? If but, it's Lord uh, of the Rings, I'm sorry. Every second is worth it. Oh, <laughs> oh Harry Potter, I'll fall asleep in both. Too long. <laughs> but Haddad Maya on the way to the semifinals, played for 12 hours, 55 minutes. And Carlos Alcaraz on the way to the semifinals, played 10 hours, 52 minutes. So Haddad Maya played for over two hours more on her route to the semifinals. So surely she should have been paid more money than Carlos Alcaraz. Um, but yeah, doesn't that, uh, doesn't that also show that, you know, these three set matches can be as grueling and, and, and take as much out than some of the five set matches as well? Yes, let me first apologize that there seemed to be some sort of uh, crashing of plates behind me. So uh, maybe it's uh, maybe it's that. maybe it's Sitsi Pass and Bedosa. Could be, could be. I mean, they did start a mutual Instagram account, so maybe they're just following up on that talk. But but with re- with regards to that, I I think that the most important point of with the whole prize money thing is that tennis players are paid as entertainers. And you mentioned movies. Yeah, you pay the same to watch a movie. But the, but the actors are certainly not paid the same. You know, if, if you have uh, one of the big actors or actresses, they or he or she will get paid more. And uh, the lesser known actors can do a lot more movie and paid less. That's the name of the game. Having said that, I think it's very, very good that uh, that tennis is on the forefront of that and pay equal money. That's that's great. But after that, it's the Wild West. Let's go for it. Why, if, if the WTA can secure the biggest prize check in the history of the game in, in their finals, then why not? I mean, that's, I, I think we should see it more as, as we're paid as entertainers and not so much as how much we labor coming in. And then to your other question, yeah, of course they can be grueling three-set matches. It goes without saying, statistically over the course of a tournament or or, or a season the, the five set matches are probably a little more grueling and and it's it's probably an anomaly that Carlos is on court as little as he was but yeah I mean there's no there's no easy way to 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 win a slam be it three sets or five sets I mean it's it's unbelievable and and uh, Maya there she's certainly 
got full value for for her prize money. That's that's for sure. And yeah, it's just how it is. Five sets is tough. Three sets is tough. Yeah, one thing might be tougher than the other. But like you say, hey, it's all tough in their own way. So maybe the tough thing about a a three set match is that you have less room for error and and you really have to be cool mentally in that way. So it depends what way you're deciding to look at it. And just for the record, the Bedosa City Pass comment, if you look on their social media, they were plate smashing on the on their social media. Um but in terms in terms of her dad Maya, if you look that we're talking about inspiring kids, but not just inspiring kids, also inspiring other tennis players. There was probably, I think, three matches. If you if you froze the score at any one point, you would think, well, she's not getting out of that match, you know. And to 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 continue making your way through that, you know, tennis match is is never lost. It's the beauty of our scoring system, Piot. You know, and I think it's it's something that maybe not enough juniors know. You know, growing up, that that actually a tennis match is not won in the first set. It's not won halfway through the second set, you know, and you, you keep going, you keep going and you never quite know when the door's going to open and your opportunity is going to arise. Yep, totally agree. Like we, we never know every point until the ball is in the game. We never know what's going to happen. So, but coming back to, 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 to the topic, like I feel it doesn't really matter what matter is about those last sets. It doesn't matter if it's five or three, but that last set when they are fighting and there is crowd behind some players and there is, you know, like fire and everything is happening in tense. And it's like, that's what is really good product as a, as entertainment, but it's actually what we live for. And I couldn't care less if it's five or three sets, you know, and before I move on to the men's bozzy, anybody, and this is to all of you actually, you know, any any eye catchers, you know, I know we we've we've got to come up with a different criteria for the dark horses as we move into the Wimbledon review and a couple of preview in a couple of weeks. because uh, I I looked back and that was shocking, you know, people coming up with Ons Jabur and people like that as dark horses. It's just completely crazy. But it's it, 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 yeah. Ostapenko, should we throw? Ostapenko yeah, well, was a bit of a dark horse. I mean, she won. A, so what do you mean she won the French Open? Come on, Simia, Penko. Well, years ago, and then she, well, she's fallen <laughs> off. The, she fell off the face of the earth the last few years. But in terms of now, retrospectively looking back, and I'll get us started. Now, I, I think this girl has real game. Danilovic, you know, and I know she lost in a very tight match to Anjaburn the third round. Uh, she's got serious firepower. She's got game. Uh, the body hasn't seemed to have held up so well in her young career so far. Um, but Emily, is Emily Gabby, is she someone you've come across? And, and is there anyone else that's jumping out for you from the from the women's side of the draw? Yeah, I've, I've played doubles with Olga and she pulled out in semis because her body didn't hold up. Um, so, yeah, from the point of view of, of that, I think she's trying to manage her schedule a bit better and play a lot less tournaments. Um, she doesn't pop up very often because she doesn't play very often. But when she actually plays, she's very, very good. And and uh, yeah, I, lo- I love the way she plays. I love her ball strike. She's got full fire in her heart and in her belly. Um, but she has just either been really unlucky or she does have that kind of body that breaks down on a regular basis. 
So I think they're trying to be more careful with her training and, and manage her load a, a bit better. Um, but I think we'll definitely see more of her in the future. Yeah. Yeah. About Danielovic, actually, she was a competitor of Iga when she played juniors. I think she was the one and Potapova who drive her drives her to play that well. Because I remember yeah. when Iga was injured and I think Danilovic won the tournament being a lucky loser in Moss in Russia on yeah, clay so. outdoors, okay. something something like that. And I remember Iga asking, like, if they can do this, I can do this too. So we, she definitely is able to be really, really good player. But it's the same case, just the different stage of life, like, like Muhova. Yeah. Another one to watch is Mira Andreeva, for sure. She is fun. I mean, what? I mean, her, like every every interview, she seems to. I just wonder if she's able to keep that that freshness or how long she can, because it's it's really fun to hear her speaking and in the way she's going about her business right now. Before she played Madrid, she played the 260s, the challengers that I was at in Switzerland. And she was so watchable, even at those tournaments, like people were drawn to watching her tennis and the way that she was playing. And she won two in a row before she came into Madrid. Um, he's a star and, she's a star for sure yeah and they, and we, Gabs and I actually said when we were watching one of her matches at French like why on earth didn't we think of her as a dark horse because she would have been a great dark horse for I don't know what round she actually got to in French but she she um, yeah she's got a cool brand of tennis and she's so young she's very young and she's really matured quickly I remember seeing her last year at a junior tournament in Milano and she was all over the place on the court yeah, she knows exactly what shot to play every single time. Yeah, and she was also behaving quite wildly, negatively and positively. And she sounds like Vozzy. Sounds like Vozzy tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, she seems to have gotten it together really quickly. So that's a great sign of maturity and development for her. And I know that they're, they're talking. I mean, I, I heard in, in Madrid when I was I was up there only for a couple of days, but I heard a lot of the coaches, WTA coaches, they're talking about her. Right, Piot? She's she's opening people's eyes. Yeah, for sure. Come on, how old is she? That's like sixteen, I think. Sixteen, and then you compare her to her older sister, which is playing good tennis too, but yeah different levels but i would say similar things maybe not that much of the difference uh, for hirtova sisters linda and brenda and brenda is the younger one who is already really close to linda so yeah so i'm i'm curious about those two two families you know really curious That'd what's going to happen very interesting and 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 last one i ha- i have to mention is svitolina you know, I, I, I certainly didn't see that. I mean, I think that was, I, I, I say we, we say that she won the WTA tournament the week before, but, you know, we are looking again, we've talked a lot about inspirational stories, but, you know, for for a mom to give birth so quickly, you know, and have that, you know, and then, and then come out again, she had the adoring French crowd, you know, married to, married to Monfils. They seem like a really fun couple, you know, and she seems like she's got a, got a level up Freddie already to, to, to almost where it was before, you know, and she's someone that maybe is going to keep pushing on as well. That's absolutely insane what she's been doing. Absolutely insane. Uh, I was actually talking to my wife about what was more impressive, Serena winning Australian Open 10 weeks pregnant or Svitolina already making quarterfinal and winning tour events after giving birth in October. 
is absolutely incredible. I watched her early on in her comeback when she was playing Clara Towson in Portugal. Very good match already, and I was really impressed. I was thinking, wow, this is pretty quick to come back. I was, I can't tell you how impressed I was. Very good coach, Raymond Sloider as well. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm pleased for him. And this is a great story. I love it. This is a great story, inspirational, really inspirational. I think for women to show that you can, you can, you can have a kid, you can uh, have a family, and you can still come back and and be competitive at the highest level. I love everything about it. Number number twenty three. You know, I don't think any of us, certainly fifteen years ago, thought we'd be talking about uh, another player getting to getting to that. You know, we've got is it is Graf on twenty three? Serena. Serena's twenty three. And Margaret yeah. Court's twenty four. You know, yeah. but you know, but uh, for, for for Novak to move to twenty three, it's amazing how quickly they did a stitch. They, they were able to stitch his his tracksuit after he won the event. I mean, that's confidence, isn't it? I mean, you, you've got the number 23 tracksuit in the bag, waiting, waiting to put on, you know, none of us outside of Gabby picked it. We're stupid. We're idiots. How, how, how could we not pick it? And to get that conversation started, another one, if you're listening, if you're a tennis player, he played six tie breaks at Roland Garros. That were fifty-five points, fifty-five points, six tie breaks, zero unforced errors. You know, and if we if we ever if we ever forget what the name of our game is, fluffy yellow ball over net in between white lines, you know, which I think at times we sometimes do forget. Novak Djokovic certainly is showing us how to do it, Freddie. You're absolutely right. And it also shows how good of a game manager he is. He knows exactly what to do in different situations. You say put it in. Um, I think if we saw those tie breaks and those 55 points, there's a certain um, level of quality for those shots. I think also one thing that I forgot about and under kind of forgot a little bit is he has so much belief in himself. In himself. And I think he kind of... Fuel, it was fuel on the, on the fire that people were talking about the young guns kind of riding him off. And I think it worked in his advantage. He's just really, really dialed in. And I think one of the big things he has as compared to the younger generation, which is also why I thought Holger was going to do well, is that he has very good game management. He knows exactly how to build a point. He knows exactly how to hurt the opponent. He rarely underplays. He rarely overplays. He's so composed and he has a lot of belief in himself and he knows what to do in certain situations. So when he locks in, he uh, he, he needs to lock in. And when he plays the close points to tie breaks, I remember a, a similar story back in uh, in Wimbledon when he won that, that massive final against Federer. He just knows exactly what he's relying on. And that's why he's so good. You know, he's also, you mentioned 55 errors. He's by far uh, the, the most efficient player we've ever seen, in my opinion. Not maybe not the most spectacular, maybe not the most eye-catching. And if you if you see him play uh, a a lesser opponent, maybe in the early rounds where he's winning less, the way he plays doesn't strike out as much uh, in, in to the eyes as much as some of the other guys who are playing more brilliantly. But as soon as he's up against against great opponents, his level just comes through so clearly. I really like the question after the Alcaraz match. Mats, Mats Verlander interviewed him as he was coming off the court. And one of the questions he asked him, he said, 
Um, were you surprised at all by the level that you've been able to produce in this tournament, given your lead up into the event? And he just looked up and just smiled and was like, no, I wasn't surprised at all by my level. And it like, Matt had Matt. I think Matt had to think of an, another question or a response to that quite quickly because he clearly wasn't going to elaborate on that. But I think that just shows like directly that those tournaments, as Piot said, coming into it were just irrelevant for Djokovic in terms of his belief going into French Open. I I also thought it was really interesting, and and I'd love to get maybe Piot's opinion on this or, or Vozzi's opinion on this when he spoke after. He apologised to his team for how difficult he'd been the last few weeks. You know, when we're talking about that level of greatness and we're talking about that level of pressure and that, you know, in that in that environment, you can almost only imagine what every single minute of every single day, the intensity that goes into that. And, and Goran just stood there laughing, you know, and it was, it was clearly a very, very challenging team to be part of, but I, I would imagine, and, and you've been a part of a, a Grand Slam winning team, Piotr, on, uh, with Eager, you know, I know it was when she was young and it was her first time, but you know, can you just explain to anyone listening just, just how, how much of a pressure cooker and, and, and how much almost every action of every minute of every day is scrutinized and, and, and the pressure that the team feels getting an athlete of that level prepared for an event like the French Open? I would say first first tournament Iga won, first Roland Garros was actually a surprise. So it was like something yeah. nice. It wasn't that kind of pressure. But the next year after, when she was defending champion, was totally different story. That's why I could actually right now really, I, I am, I, I admire her team right now because it's not defending champion once, it's defending champion, champion second time and to see if she can handle the pressure this time. So so that's a lot of work and actually, is it different? I don't think so. I think just champions who behave differently at Grand Slams is something something normal. That's always more pressure. There is always always more work. There is always more mental stretches. But that's what we do for a living. So we have to adapt. It also sounds like to me that the devil's in the details with a lot of these top players because <clears throat> even though they are like a Novak or the big three on the guy's side, they are so far ahead. It's like, how have they been able to stay ahead so consistently for so long? And they don't really have that dip. And so I think when we were talking earlier, even M, you said about hydration and fuel, like there's a science around the exact specific hydration for these top players. I mean, they have the perfect science for clay season, grass season, hardcore season, exactly what they're going to eat, exactly what they're going to drink, access to information that probably maybe, I don't know, maybe a few other players have. And so I feel like that's also what separates the good from the great is like they are just so much more meticulous about everything around them. And so I could see, you know, how maybe he's apologizing because he's been maybe more 
anal about things at that particular moment to be able to win that slam. Um, but sometimes like just with Novak that I've noticed, there are times when he's almost like lost a first set almost to like throw off the opponent that they have a chance to win and then just completely demoralizes them for the rest of the match. And so I feel like his entry into this tournament was kind of like that. Like it was almost like you guys think you have a chance, but like you really don't. Um, And I think that's why I also stayed with him as my pick. Like he's not my favorite tennis player of all time, but I have a lot of respect for the way that he's gone about being so successful for so long. To ask you, Gabby, you you played French Open, you know, semi finalists at mixed doubles, you know, third mm. third round women's double. Hey, there's, <laughs> and I'm sitting here eating a chocolate cake. Do you know what I mean? Like you're you you're doing better than ninety nine point nine 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 percent of 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 people that are playing tennis out there, and that's important to remember. But in in terms of in terms of you playing at a Grand Slam, French Open, obviously Wimbledon up and coming. You know, I know you've got good experience at Grand Slam level. Explain the differences as a player when you are going into a Grand Slam from, a, I guess, a mindset, a preparation, you know, what you what you feel, you know, how 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 that is different from maybe going and playing the other events. Or are you able to get in the mindset that it's just another event? I think for me, the main difference is just expecting longer matches. That's really the main thing. Um, and I rather, I'd rather that. So I get excited for the fact that we have full scoring two out of three sets. Um, so for me, that's really the main adjustment because a lot of our matches throughout the year, they can begin and end very quickly, um, in particular with the sudden death deuce. So I love going into slams because I feel like there's a lot less luck involved in who wins matches. Um, it is a lot about who's played better more consistently throughout that match or throughout the tournament. So um, for me, that would really be the the only adjustment in terms of doubles. Um, yeah. So so the actual event or, or, or size or history of the event doesn't necessarily impact? Not as much, no. And, and Not now. Not and and Freddie to bring to bring you in because I think it's it's Freddie time because um, we're about to talk about Mr. Rune. But firstly, I'd like to talk about Casper Ruud, who I need to get the clip. But I do believe that you have said before on this podcast that he would not make another Grand Slam final after his two last year. Um, and the stats do back that up a, li a little bit. You know, he's. It, his his win over Holger Rune was actually the first time he's ever beaten a top 10 player at a Grand Slam. You know, I, I, I think, you know, people were easy saying, okay, he, he made two finals last year, but he had great draws and then look at his results after and he hasn't had a great 2023. But it's maybe time for us to stick a little bit more respect on the name of Kasper Ruud. You know, just like we uh, uh, stupidly wrote off Novak Djokovic, you know, watching Kasper Ruud the last two weeks, the boy can seriously, seriously play. And I think he's here to stay. You know, is he is he going to be a superstar of the game like an Adal uh, Djokovic? No, I don't, he's not. He's not going to be a multiple slam champion, I don't think. But he's great for the game. He, he carries himself incredibly well. 
and has your opinion changed a little bit on on what you've seen over of Casper the last couple of weeks? Um, yes and no. I do think that he has. I, I do think that he played better and he had more zip to his game this time around, which is uh, which is impressive. I was also disappointed to have under under uh, appreciated his grit and his character because he's got great character. He works well. Very respectful guy. Politeful guy. That maximizes whatever he does on the court always keeps it simple knows exactly where he's good where he's bad what to avoid and how to hurt the opponent um i, I think it's a time to to appreciate him maybe not mention too much that his draw was all right but let's let's be honest he he played one top 10 player to the to to the final so his draw was all right but at the same time i agree with you very good player. He'll be around. I also, like I said, I was—I don't know—I was—I was—I had a moment of madness in the last preview. He was—he, uh, you know, sports is about character and consistency. And these two guys who play the final, they have character and they have consistency. And yes, Casper is going to be around because he's got character and consistency. And I think a lot of the other youngsters are struggling with that. And he's going to take advantage. And and yeah, he had a weird year, but he also had a weird preseason and a. He probably he came out and said he probably wouldn't have done that, isn't going to do that next time. So he also lives and learns. And he's young. He's probably not peaking until 25, 26. So, yeah, I'm, I think also rolled back the tapes. I'm pretty certain that I wouldn't have talked so defin- definitely. I said he might not ever, and he, uh, but let, let's leave that be. I, I think I also said I would be happy if he did. So right now I'm just happy that he did. And I, I'm, I think that... Uh, it's great for Scandinavian tennis as well. So I, uh, I'm i happy to be wrong on that one. What's the word in Denmark about, about Holger? Yeah, people don't really know what went wrong. Obviously, something didn't play. He, I mean, from the first match against Eubanks, something was off. People are trying to speculate what happened, but he even said it himself. He didn't find his, find his game. The word is, what was wrong? Did he play too much in the weeks leading up to? Was he mismanaged? What, what was happening? Was he ill during the week? He didn't really give anything away in the interview. So so basically, there's a lot of question mark as to what went wrong, which is also quite interesting from a 20-year-old who made quarterfinal of the slam. But, but, but there was, obviously was something wrong in the game. So, so there's a lot of like, hmm, more, more in, not, not so much disappointment, more like interesting uh, that, that it didn't go that way and, and what went wrong. And anyone, anyone had any standouts on the men's side this year? Vozzy, anybody that you, that you watched and thought, you know what, that, that loved watching this guy play, this is a one for the future? No, not really. I think the, the, top, the top three are, way ahead. I think, you know, obviously on clay, I would say that you, the best player always wins on clay, whereas not necessarily the best tennis player will always win on a faster hard court or a grass court because you can slap winners and get away with it, whereas on clay, you, you've, you've got to build the points and, you know, you you are ultimately the better tennis player that, that wins. It's a lot harder. I think I think Novak continues to shine and, you know, like I think what Fred says, I mean, in the big events like Slam, there, there is there is a big gap. I think playing on the faster surfaces is going to be a little bit of an equaliser, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, how he goes on the grass. I mean, last year he never played any warm-up tournaments. He came, you know, played a couple of Hurlingham and, and one Wimbledon. So, I mean, he's doing I'm the sure same this year. This. He is, yeah. Yeah, he's doing exactly the same, yeah. So, you know, yeah. he's going to come in the week before, tickle it around a bit, and then, you know, basically plant himself into form, you know, 
and, and you know over, over over the grass. So no, I don't I don't see. I mean, not, you know, uh, I mean they're not, they're not young, but you know, TFO Fritz, you know, those guys can you know have a shot, but I I, I still think that the risk is too big. And Freddie, your Serendulo pick was looking, you know, pretty good. That's a that's a proper dark horse there, yeah. you know. And he 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 almost took out Holger, and then it would have been a real dark horse going all the way to the quarterfinals. He looks like he's really come on on the clear courts as well. But and anybody else that's jumping to jump into your mind? No, I'm kind of behind Vazi on that one. I'm not too too impressed by the by the young generation coming through. Um, I was expecting uh, players like. Like Fritz, maybe not so much on the clay, but Fritz, Tiafo, Chapo, Felix, and these guys to be more of a factor at this stage in their careers, but but they're really not. And yeah, Sarundolo did really well at, at the end. I actually think he gagged it a little bit against Helga. So so maybe he still needs a little bit to 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 compete a bit against the very good guys. But I think it's difficult to see where it should come from. I honestly do. I think yeah, I also think that the uh, made fun of me, but but uh, after the after the French Open, uh, I, I I tweeted that uh, Novak might get to thirty. It wasn't all just throwing it out there. I think he might actually get to thirty. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that. I mean, it's just, just interesting. Just interesting talking on the Holger Rune. Um, Mike James put a uh, who's the analyst that works with him, and um, he put a thing on about the, the whole clay court season. You know, he what he won, and you know. And I just said, you know, would he, would he swap all that for just winning the French Open? He wrote for sure. So I think going back to what Fred, I think he was so cooked going into into Paris. He, he wasn't giving himself the best opportunity to to do as well as he could have done in Paris based on the, the volume of, of, of matches and titles that he won all through the clay, clay season, which is great, but it stands for nothing when obviously you talk about somebody of that, 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 that level is ultimately wanting to win the French. And that's where all the experience comes in. So if you have experience like Norway does, you have the quality. There's certainly no panic station for him in in, in Madrid. He didn't even even play Madrid, but in Rome... You would would have thought, you know, having the super-duper Moritoglu in your box, looking super dapper with his beard nice and shaved and, (laughs) you know, his his kiss looking good, that, you know, he would have advised him on, on potentially a better schedule um, rather than being there every week. But I will challenge you on that, though. So, what should he have done differently, though? He played three thousands and a and a and a and Munich and Munich on clay. So, what 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 do you think he should have done differently? Lost early on um, purpose. Well, potentially, maybe you know, as an example, um, Rome. I mean, with the conditions, um, you know, taking taking that off. Hindsight's a great thing. I mean, but you know, when when you're looking when you're looking at, at at the with at the event, you know, does that replicate what the conditions in Paris? And and obviously, you think sometimes because Rome can be super hot and the ball can fly at Rome, but it, it wasn't. Um, and and then obviously, you know, like a schedule, a schedule, a schedule sh- should should be evergreen. It should 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 always be up to, up to change based based on how the player's playing, or you know, and. and if you take Evo, he's got, you know, obviously schedule was playing every week, but it's going to look a lot different, you know, based on, based on, you know, if he, if he gets a lot of matches in, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I do think that, yeah, it should, in hindsight, maybe not, not played as much and, you know, given himself, you know, the legs and the heart that he definitely has, but I think he was bluffing a little bit in, in, in against Casper. Um, I think he was, 
he was dead. Yeah, it's possible, and maybe this is something that he's yeah. going to learn from. But when you're when you're yeah, coming in, yeah. you you think yeah. you can do everything right, and you think. But if you if you put it on paper and you say uh, final of Monte Carlo, lose lose early in Madrid, you win Munich, and then you play finals in Rome, going into a week of rest before Paris, you probably sign on for that, right? So before you do it, because then you say, oh, you get the matches, you get the rhythm, you get the rest before Paris, you have the confidence going in, you're young. I mean, I think that should be all right, uh, in my I, opinion. I think that, Freddie, I think it's, we're talking about matches there. I, I guess the thing that also we don't know behind the scenes, and this is where experience seems to count for so much in, in our sport nowadays, is to touch on what Emily said about around the nutritional side of things, to to look at how their practice, the practice intensities, the practice amounts, the days off, the the travel, the you, you just don't know, do you? you and, and that's those 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 are the bits that I guess, and without being on the inside, we're speculating. But I I I know, Pierre, we've spoken about these things before. Some of the your. But can I just say something to that point? Yeah, absolutely. Because when when you mentioned that, I think the one thing that that should be different from Mahalga in the future is maybe. Gabby mentioned that, that how uh, Novak likes to basically tank a set, which I don't disagree with. Basically, sometimes it looks like he does it just for training. Uh, but but Holger seems like every point is a matter of life and death. And I think what matters more is, is not so much the matches, but more that every match is such a battle and such a, I got to win every yeah, point. Absolutely. And then it, it goes up and down. And I think maybe that the... The, the thing to work on the more next year is, in my opinion, maybe not so much the schedule, but more how he manages the matches. And I think he could do well to have a lot more routine wins where he maybe doesn't have to dig so deep and just lets let it, it be, becomes a little more natural in what he tries to win and maybe, yeah, win some matches more on the tennis side instead of battling and finding a way. Which battling think, the crowd yeah. and battling everything. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the clear court season, I mean, he... He took on Monte Carlo. <laughs> he took on Madrid. You know, he mm. he, he took on a lot. And, and and for me, watching Holger, I was disappointed when I watched the Serendulo match because I thought he can't win the French Open because he actually mm. tanked. He actually tanked the fourth set, and he tanked the fourth set to try and help get him through that match. But he he he, he looked completely cooked. So I think it, it it is all of those things. So from a coaching standpoint, Piot, because I know that's a that's a big part of how you think as a coach. And you know we've had some great conversations on that. What's what's your take on that, and and how you're preparing a player and getting the right the right amount of practice time, the right amount of rest, the you know the the intensity that matches have been played in, the you know everything that goes into not saving yourself, but getting yourself in peak condition for the for the big, big events? First of all, I think you overestimated us as a coaches to have that much influence, I think, because first of all, Rune will learn his lesson playing those matches. And what Fred said, I think it's accurate, but it's like just playing those matches, he's getting more, more load, he's getting more volume, he's getting more working hours which he works matches nothing else than practice for us as a coaches. So next year he's going to be prepared way better. And for sure, he's going to have some routine sets and some routine matches, which he doesn't will won't have to fight as much as this year. So I would say in this case, actually, I wouldn't be surprised if he even didn't do anything and 
went to the next year and playing twice as good as he was this year. But overall, I would what I would try to do, probably if I'm in a final of thousand, I skip next thousand. I know it's it sounds weird, but why? What's for? You're gonna forget how to play tennis? I would skip four days of practicing. What what is like what's the reason to go and hit for four days? You know, like take time off, celebrate, enjoy your moment and come back stronger. And I don't think actually you need matches. You need to feel confident and playing matches. Even sometimes you win, you go to smaller tournaments, you win, you don't get in confidence. It doesn't build on that. I think uh, sometimes, okay, it helps when you are looking for it, when it's only thing you think about. But most of the time it doesn't. You go to a weaker tournament, you feel like, oh, I'm number one seeded. So when you win, instead of feeling like happy about it, you feel relieved. You feel, oh, I should have win. Oh, I won because everybody else was were weaker than I am. It's not like you build on it. You even go, you know, like you build, you, you dig bigger hole under yourself. Even you win. So the balance is really difficult for me as a coach, but I would go strongly suggest always take time off, think about it, like get back to your basics, set up your life, start from there and then decide what, what next. Do, are we ready for the next tournament? Are we healthy? Do we feel good? Is like everything on point? Are you like even mentally ready to travel again? You know, like you just, you cannot take those things for granted. That's the worst thing we can do. We can assume that, oh, I did that for last five years. So that's what I'm going to do this year. What if this year is different than any other years? And what if those years you did in the past were actually terrible? You just didn't, you know, like right now you don't remember them as terrible years because they're in the past. So you always remember good emotions and those really bad. They've been just mediocre and you felt like, oh, okay. So there is no one way of doing it. So I don't feel, of course, I'm into programming. I love uh, counting volume. I love counting loads. I love, I love it. But it's not about it when we're talking about the tournaments. And Dan, just on that, just taking all of that into account, I just think it proves that it's just the toughest sport in the world for scheduling and for just not knowing what's going to happen on a daily basis, but also on a weekly basis with how many matches we're going to get. And I think there's not, you know, in athletics and in all these other sports where it's a more closed environment and they're peaking four or five times a year. I think it's testament to the teams around these players and the people who are doing it without teams that actually it's so, so difficult to judge it and to get it right. And even when you've done it for so many years, you there's still so many things that can come into it and so many external factors with travel and with a niggle or with an injury or with a day off that wasn't supposed to be a day off or a rain day that was supposed to be a heavy day. And all the time we're adjusting it's always fluid from the night before there can't be many sports in the world where you don't even know the schedule for the next day yeah, but until 7 p.m 8 p.m i i would say that tennis is probably one of not many sports too when we always trying to catch up which is for me wrong in the first place uh done so that i was reading actually the book about bodybuilding and that was a philosophical question why we always do four sets when we did didn't try to do one and do the 
mathematics around it. Like, you know, to do less, we always think, oh, I'm not doing great. Let's do more. Yeah. What if I just need more rest? What if I don't need to catch up? I need to recover. I need to catch up to myself. I just need time for myself. That's what, what is important for me. Like we as a coaches, players, people who works around, we always push for more. Why? What's the reason? Maybe it's time to think about recovery, you know? It's a very good point because we had a study in Denmark with some rowers and they were on a, on a program where they had to recover more and not work out as much as they used to and their times improved. And then when they were off the, this program, uh, they went back to training the, the the way they always had instead of this new way that improved. So I think we're just, it's a very good point. I think it's a weakness and it's a matter of habit. And I don't think, I, I like the way you're thinking, Jordan. Because for me, like, I, I like the statement from Mike Manser. He was bodybuilder. It was 90s. But he said, you either go intense or you go long. It's impossible to go long and go intense. It's always one or or the other one so and why we push for long and intense you know like that's what we do in a practice that's what we do in scheduling that that's what we do in like whole career what's the final goal of it to make somebody you know disabled after career that's that's really bad thinking for me even like from organization standpoints like playing 20 tournaments a year yeah push our players to play 20 tournaments because the product gonna sell yeah, great for one year and then you have no rivalries. Then you have players who are constantly injured. That's not a good product, but everybody, yeah, yeah, let's do it. That's going to be a good product. So tennis is also yeah. very strange, Sergeant Rob, in that sense that our tennis practice times are so arbitrary. Why are we hitting an hour? Why are we hitting two hours? Why are we feeding a basket and stuff? I'm, I'm trying to challenge myself on that a lot because... It seems like training times are just set in stone, like, oh, we got to be on court for two hours, and then people are on the court for two hours. But what if the practice session required is one hour 37 or uh, 47 or whatever? There's a lot of arbitrary numbers in tennis, or you just feed a basket, the whole basket, and why, why do you feed that? And I think there's, there's some room for improvement in the game of tennis when it comes to that. It's such a good, and, and I'm, I'm pleased we brought it up because, PR, I think your words of wisdom on that are uh, incredibly thought-provoking for, for all of us and, and, and for, for everyone listening. The, the, the one question I would, I would ask, and I'd love for everyone's opinion on this before, before we wrap it up, is it not also easier to schedule and, and program for a player that is ranked as high as Holger Rune is? You know, he, he knows... Yeah. He knows he's only playing certain events. He knows exactly which events he's pretty much going to play. You know, he's not really playing 250s. Um, he, his team pretty much know that he's going deep in pretty much every tournament. You know, whereas the the majority of tennis players out there, and Emily touched on it, one don't have the <laughs> advice, but, yeah. but, but two, are so reactive to the events that they're getting in and, and so desperate also to get into those events that are that are bringing the right points and the money and i actually go back to a, a certain mr freddie nielsen who and believe it or not freddie, i've listened to a lot that you've said over the years and and you've actually played a big role in certainly my philosophies over the years we've talked a lot of tennis and i remember freddie saying to me probably 15 almost 20 years ago one of the big mistakes is that tennis players go 
go to tennis tournaments when they're not 100% ready physically and mentally, you know, and actually only going to the event when you are absolutely ready, you know, you're ready physically and mentally to be able to go there and win the tournament. Whereas I think the tennis player's mentality is quite often, let's just go, even if I can just win a couple of matches, then uh, I pick up a few points and that takes my ranking up by five, 10 spots. And then, you know, I'll get a little bit of money and then, and then something might just magically form from there, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that, that kind of treadmill way of thinking, I think is so ingrained, not by the way, not just in 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 absolute top peak level high performance tennis, but in tennis academies. You know, I think, I mean, it's brutal. You know, being a tennis coach at a tennis academy, and you know, even the players and the fitting in school and you know, round school, they've got to do X amount of hours, and then they've got to play the tournaments at the weekend. It's it 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 is it is pretty relentless, and it feels like a hamster wheel at times that we're all kind of on. Um, so I think if we can take those words, Piot, and uh, we can maybe start writing a book. Let's get the Piot book written because uh, I think it's it's a really nice way nice way of looking at it. And guys, I've kept you long enough talking of relentless, talking of hamster wheels. <laughs> it's it feels like we've got on the hamster wheel a little bit. Kieran Vost has jumped up off the hamster wheel, so I'm seeing my opportunity for us to for us to get out of here. As always, love, love, love having you guys on here. I uh, really do and appreciate every every minute that you guys give up. It, it's invaluable. I really do believe that. You know, I had a bit of a joke with you guys on the WhatsApp group beforehand that 160 countries are now listening to this podcast. But there's a lot of people mm. around the world that are. You know, that is true. There are different countries that are listening. And and to get your valuable insight, to get to to peek in and listen to to these conversations is is incredible for them. So my my last question, we did this we did this three years ago. I'm going to bring the tape up. Maybe two years ago, we picked how many Grand Slams Novak Djokovic would win. I remember my pick at the time. I won't change it. I will be getting my amazing team that help on the podcast to be going through the old tapes to find out what others said. So, Freddie, if you remember, you've got to. You can either change it, but you'll be being called out on what you said before. Quick quiz. How many Grand Slams when Novak Djokovic eventually retires does he have to his name? Starting with Emily Webley-Smith. 28. Gabby? That's what I was going to say, 28. <laughs> you, can, you can jump in with 28 as well. Piot? I think 29 and he's going to try to get 30, but he never going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie? I wrote 30. I was going to say 30. Uh, I was going to say 28. That was my first uh, guess. But now that I've written out there for the world to see 30, I'm going to say 30. And I'm going to double up with a Olympic gold 60. medal as well. I was going to say 60. <laughs> and, and, and Kieran? 26. 26. So nobody went for my magic number. My lucky number, my birthday is 27. I said 27 two and a half years ago and everyone laughed at me. You know, and that, you know, that's how it, people thought that that number was way too high at the time. Um, so I'm going to stick to 27. Let's see. Last, 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 last question. At what point do we all start respecting him a little bit more than we currently do? And I'm not just talking about this podcast. Is, is there I'm not respect about, for him? And what, what, what are you talking about? Uh, so what I'm talking about is, and I'm softening. I'm softening. Again, I'm probably a big softie and I love history. 
But I, I'm starting to soften a little bit to Novak Djokovic. Never used to be able to watch him play. I used to turn the telly off. But I, I, I'm enjoying the history that is happening. And I think there becomes a point where the mood, the outlook, the tone, the way that we look at Novak Djokovic changes over the next couple of years than it has been over the last 15. I don't know if anybody agrees, but that's my ah. thought. I think you're right. And I think also there's a thing right now that everything has to be so black and white. I quite like him to just be who he is and own it. I think the biggest issue for me is the the trying to change the fact that he's a bit of a volatile, crazy guy on the court. I quite like that, own up to it. And he's actually, he does a lot of good off the court that not a lot of people know about funding people's career, supporting financially, doing all sorts of stuff. And I think tennis-wise, I think you got a point in the same way that I kind of warmed up to Sampras more after he played as well. I thought he was fairly boring when he was playing, but afterwards I started to appreciate his quality more. And I think you're quite right about Novak, but it, it, the problem is he's up against Roger and Rafa and he's never going to compete with them when it comes to eye candy tennis. So yeah, I don't know. I, th I think he's, he's getting a lot of respect as well, but maybe he won't be as, as uh, well seen as, as the other guys. Guys, thank you. And the message will be going out in about 10 days' time about Wimbledon. You never have to come on, but we would love to have you guys back. It's Grand Slam tennis around the corner. A big, big thank you to you all, and we will see you next time. Thank you. And what another cracker that was, honestly. Like, we we could talk for hours and hours, and, and, and we do, you know, but a little, share a little story. Myself and Freddie Nielsen, we stayed on the call for another hour or so after. And then I sent a little WhatsApp on the group to say, honestly, guys, brilliant job. Thank you so much. Because genuinely, you know, they give up so much of their time for free, you know, to, to, to bring these amazing insights to everybody. And... Emily responded and said, well, actually, me and Gabby have just got off the phone. We've been debriefing on the chat. It was such a rich chat that we took so much from. And this is at 1, 1 a.m. in the morning. You know, and this is what happens when you get passionate people in the world of tennis together, you know, talking very openly and honestly about subjects that are close to their heart. And I, I hope that comes through. I, I really do, because it, it does for me, you know, when I'm, while I'm having the conversation, it, it feels like... They're conversations that, that could lead to change in certain aspects as well. And I, I would love to hear your feedback, guys, as always, on, on what you think. You know, is it working? Do you like the reviews? Do you like the previews? And, and, and what do you think of our brilliant panellists? Because for me to be able to send those messages on to them is something that would be brilliant to do. And on the topic that was, was so hotly talked about and it was talked about by many, whether it was social media, whether it was at the event, you know, Kato being defaulted, should she, shouldn't she? And it opens up the topic of, do we have the rules right? You know, are they clear? And I think even the fact that a bunch of tennis people couldn't quite get, get that clear shows how ambiguous that really is. And Gabby sent us a message this morning just to let us know exactly what it says about the rule. And, and ultimately, it's down to action plus result. If the action is malicious and the result is all good, there can be a default. It's at the discretion of the umpire. If the action is unintentional but the result is harm to someone, then it is a default. 
You know, now what we're basically saying there is it actually depends on the harm that happens, you know, more so than it does actually the the action or the intent of what was done. And I think we can all agree it's just not clear enough. You know, it's for for players when there's so much money on the line, there's so many points on the line. And we're not talking about the best, best players in the world because they don't need it. But doubles players who are playing in the second round, third round of a Grand Slam, that's big money. That's money that's putting food on their family's table for the rest of the year. You know, that's allowing them to get air flights to all the different parts of the world that they need to have. You know, and they can't afford to be missing out on that because... Is it their wrongdoing or is it not? But let's make the rules really clear. You know, even if the rule is harsh, let's make sure it's a clear, harsh rule. You know, and, and right there, it's really not clear. So, Gabby, thank you for sending that through. Hopefully, that helps everyone understand what the ruling is. And as Gabby said, who's on the board with the WTA, they're going to look at trying to push some of those things through. As I could, again, talk for longer because the topics were so rich, but I'm sure you have your own opinions and I'm sure that you have loved listening to them. So I'm not going to do that, but I am going to leave you with the excitement of Wimbledon, which is approaching. The grass court season has started. A couple of days ago, we had the referee Andrew Jarrett of Wimbledon of 14 years who was on the podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode, do. You just need to click up one and you'll get Andrew Jarrett and all of his amazing stories coming through, which will whet the appetite for the grass court season even more so. I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm hoping to get the panel back together in a couple of weeks. The Grand Slams are coming thick and fast so we can preview what is going to happen. I'm not going to be stupid. I'm not going to go against Novak Djokovic this time. It's hard to see him not picking up 24 but hey, tennis is played on a tennis court. It's not played on paper. So let's see what happens. Hope you are well wherever you are in the world. Thank you for your support. We love having you guys as part of the Control the Controllables community. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.